Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So hi, everybody. We took a, quite a bit of a break here during this uh, summer break as we needed to, you know, make sure that uh, we're giving ourselves time and grace to do other things other than work um, or things that required sitting down in front of a screen after, you know, a whole year uh, and a half now of just being in our computers and um, thankfully working from home, but also that's the other part is our backs are hurting, our hands are hurting from typing, and our eyes are also in terms of being able to see uh, the screen. So it's been really nice to, to be able to take a break and then come back and be able to, again, start again, uh, more consistent publishing of our episodes. Um, and so now that we're, we're checking in, Ariana, how has, you know, the summer treated you so far? Yeah, so um, I was just thinking that it's August and I, what was at the end of June, I was freaking out, not freaking out. I was, um, it's just like the, the student in me, like I should be doing something with my summer. Like I should be preparing, I should be reading because look at the office that I see And I emailed my prophet and she said, you know, if you happen to have time, read, you know, you know, get up to speed with uh, critical race theory books. And I'm mm-hmm. like, see, see. And have I gotten a hold of a book? No. I did check it out, try checking out the library. It hasn't been um it hasn't arrived, so it's kind of not my fault. But um all these things that I was hoping to well, I was hoping to be more studious over the summer, I didn't do. She did say, take your summer, like enjoy your summer, because this is like the last time you're you're going to be, you're gonna have a break or you're gonna have some time off. And then, um, yeah, I was realizing that and, and I, what was it, maybe like a month ago, I was logging into my UC Riverside account and trying to, you know, they sent, they sent emails saying like, update your contact information. And I think within that, I figured out that I had an, a UC Riverside email that I had no idea was already active. So then, you know, I went to my Spotify and updated my account so they wouldn't be charging me as a non-student. And then I checked my email and thankfully I found this um, about this program, internship program at UC Riverside for incoming PhD students. And it was due in three days. So I was just like, (gasps) apurada filling it out. Um, but that's, you know, just something that I didn't know was already in place and my coordinator didn't tell me. And then I, then again, I'm like, these are just things that you have to like figure out on your own. No one tells you, right. Unless you have someone on the other side, right. A current, uh, PhD student, a current student telling you, Hey, set up this, set up that, you know? it's kind of you're on your own and you figure it out. It's part of being proactive instead of reactive. Or just passive, right? It's like, that's the, one of the challenges of like college is like for this whole time through K through 12 and even at the community college, they really don't teach you how 
just four-year universities work and function. The fact that a lot of the times no va a haber una persona like there to tell you and remind you five million times, hey, you're supposed to do these things um, or even give you a notice, which is, again, kind of like a here's this balance of like how much notifications and stuff that we need to give you uh, because at the at the same time getting like 50 emails every day in your inbox is also not very strategic in terms of being able to communicate and relay that message it's been a lot harder even for universities to figure out like what's the sweet spot in terms of communications and how to do it because now like for the most part for the whole past year things have been online um and very few in-person stuff so for the most part a lot of the students last year were especially the ones who are used to in-person who had to transition continuing on uh fall 2020 2020 yeah where they had to remember that you know, a lot of the reminders or conversations that they would hear from other students, the panic would set in in terms of what they needed to get done because other people were talking about it. But now that they went into a more isolated uh, space where it was harder to not only build community, but also interact with other students around there to just figure out what they needed to make sure to get done. Um, and that's the part that sucks is that For, for students who don't do well with emails or don't even know how to access their email account, for the majority, the universities don't actually guide you or inform you how to access anything that you need to make sure that you know how to set all of these things up. And also the way that K through 12 works is very different because again, they always are reminding students, repeating themselves. Very, very few people have good, really good listening skills Um, I know how to take ownership of like, what are your responsibilities and understand that those responsibilities are yours because again, you wanted to sign up to go to college, take ownership of your own things because what, for oftentimes we default of saying, well, someone else expects me to do this. Um, someone told me that I have to do this. I didn't have a choice. And then navigating and being like thrown into this environment in college and even especially graduate school, where you really have to take ownership of, again, uh, your responsibilities or the tasks that you need to complete beforehand. And a lot of the tasks in grad school are self-motivated, self-paced, um, and you have to just like be aware that that is something that you even have to do. Um, in college, especially for undergrads, it's just been so hard Um For them to do everything, I, I'm doing frosh orientation and every session it has progressively gotten worse as the summer has gone on, where even less students are reading their emails or checking what they need to get done. Transfer students was a huge mess. Uh, part of it wasn't their fault, of course, because uh, the way that the university set up, like the orientation department, whoever handles that. Uh, in the outreach admissions office was awful because they, they set up orientation in two parts and they set it up awfully where it just didn't make any sense. But the other hand, students are like neglecting that they have to move on to this new place. They have to read their emails and they have to turn in things on time like transcripts and financial aid information. 
So everything has been delayed for them. And I am the more and more time went on, the less and less empathetic and patient I was. And now I'm so glad that I pre-scheduled these uh, next two days off because I'm like, I'm just exhausted of not only dealing with other departments, not having their messaging together, but also students not having their life together uh, in terms of just being able to register for classes, which is again, one small, but big impactful thing that they have to do in order to be college students. At the end of the day, bottom line, you can participate in anything else and still either be a college student or not, but being enrolled in classes is the bare like foundation of being able to go to college. So the fact that a lot of students don't see that as an important thing to really get um, really good at or know, understand all the requirements needed to, to be sure that they're enrolled, um, it's pretty frustrating, um, especially when colleges are very reluctant and themselves being proactive because, again, they're very, very passive or just don't exist at all. And then when shit hits the fan, that's when they're trying to like pick up the me- their own mess, right? But it's just, como dije la otra vez, like the incentive of doing anything and being proactive is very minimal in college uh, settings. Uh, and nobody working in college is very incentivized to be proactive and be very on top of things. If you are, you're uh, overworking yourself and you're doing way more than really what you paid for. Um, and also uh, a lot of people don't like the liability that it entails if you are telling people they don't want to then have students um, complain about it. So if I'm there being nice, like for example, and letting them know what a uh, tuition fee deferral is, but I don't work in financial aid. Uh, if I tell them the wrong information, even if I, though I'm trying to tell them, hey, go to the financial aid, it doesn't matter. I will get in trouble for even trying to do something outside of my own job responsibilities, right? Um, that's typically what happens is that people are, they're not, they're not okay with you doing their job, but they're also not okay with uh, the results that ends up happening when students don't actually become proactive in their financial aid, like holds, to-do list items, or the fact that they don't have financial aid dispersed because they missed a step. But if you don't tell them that, then how can they be enrolled, right? So it just doesn't make any sense. And it's also just like frustrating experience of like, again, dealing with the world of adults that are getting in the way of other adults being able to live their lives, um, spe- specifically in the college setting. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you were, you were talking about how, you know, it's a mess in the people running these things, they're a mess and the students are a mess. So it's kind of um, counterproductive, right? It's like the same, you would think that universities, you know, would have these, since it's so cyclical that they would have these things in place, but sometimes departments are understaffed and People are asked to do more with less and it just affects, you know, it's unfortunate because it affects the student experiences, right? Um, sometimes there might be advisors like you that you, that prepare, right? That pro- provide videos, uh, instructions on how to do things and you ask them, ask the students to do it, but then they don't do it uh, and show up and still ask the same questions that you already went over. 
and that's, I don't know if that's a, mil, uh, a generation, what is it, Z, X at this point. Um, but those are things that I've noticed as well, where it's like a lot of hand holding. And I don't know if that comes out, comes from the K through 12 system or where they're used to being told how to do things, reminders and all these things. And maybe like the drastic freedom that they experience in college where no one tells them what to do. Yeah. And then in some parts, universities really, um, really hide behind the notion that, and I've heard this tons and tons of times, even being a college student myself, uh, was that you're an adult now and you have to get these things done. Right. But they never set up their whole childhood in understanding how to do things on their own, because everything has rules and everything is dictated for you to not be feel like you can have a choice or have an opinion about things, right? Just in general, in our family structures, um, like talking about my own family structures, like it was never okay for a child to say an opinion about an adult, either an adult conversation or an adult conversation about that person. So like if a child, like if I, I, if I have an opinion about my dad over drinking at parties, because it affects me because of what will happen after he is drunk or what he does when he is drunk around people and he's negatively making comments or doing things or making decisions that don't, that affect me, that is not okay. Right. So we're like conditioning people to like, not be able to have an opinion. And I often come across a lot of frosh of first year students and even transfer students at this point, and they're older, um, that are having a hard time being able to make decisions when they have so many options now. And now they really have to consider the consequences of those actions that they have. Um, And they just like get stuck, you know, like they're like, I don't know what to do. You know what to do. You know what? And I was just like, I actually really don't know what's best for you. And I think we need to understand that a lot of adults really don't know what is best for everybody (laughs) other than maybe themselves. And even then it's kind of questionable. Uh, But it's just like so frustrating that um, we don't teach more people to be to like have a a really great childhood and upbringing that helps them become very balanced, healthy, um, building really great, you know, connections and relationships with everybody around them. Um, it, It just doesn't happen. And it's it's interesting because I've been watching a lot of uh, TikToks of like therapists, psychologists, just understanding my own childhood trauma, <laughs> you know, around this time, just figured out, I was like, oh, that's another way that adults fucked my life over, you know, as a kid, no wonder I have this shit. I, I was that kind of kid that loved autonomy, was looking forward to being an adult. Um, I really enjoy part of the adulting part where it's like, I get to do things that I enjoy. But uh, uh, again, other adults kind of fuck it up over you because again, we have to pay rent, we have to have insurance for everything and all of that stuff that just doesn't make any sense. But if you really think about it as you're a kid, if you even think about your own first few years when you were able to talk and remember, we were like, always have this want to be involved, to be cared for, to even have our opinion uh, matter. Like all of that stuff comes and I'm just always amazed how from the moment that that kid can talk or can vocalize or even show emotion of like what they're feeling, we condition them to put that away and aside for the adult's feelings to, to be like first. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of like a conversation that I was um, having with my brother who had, you know, had did high school the first year remotely. And um, he doesn't know that he doesn't know what the high school is like. And so he's starting a new high school this year and he's, and I was giving him advice, right? Like, you know, he's always like, what did they, you know, what did they teach you in geometry or what, what should I, what kind of questions they ask you for the DNV test? Like, right. Like he's trying to like get through me some, you know, some knowledge or some idea of what that's like. And, oh, I was a, you know, I gave him an idea, but, you know, I told him that I was in high school, like 10, you know, 10, 12, how many years, 13 years ago. And it's very different now. Um, and then I said, you know, a strategy that I use, cause we're talking, you know, a little bit about research, uh, being resourceful and proactive. I said, you know, a strategy was like, I had my Latina friends and I'm not trying to stereotype that they weren't hardworking or studious. They were, but they were my friends who I would hang out with where I would not think about school or, you know, we would play soccer. So we would go to these uh, tournaments and, and then, um, and then I had my one white friend who was very studious and, and, and I knew that if I wanted to study, I would go to her. If I wanted to have fun and chill and relax and be carefree would be my Latina friends. And then, it would be like that. And I told him, you know, it's all about finding your people and finding those that can help you and support you along the way where you have things in common or, you know, not one friend or not a group of friends is going to have everything. So you just have to be strategic. And, you know, I'm like in the counselor, you have to make her your best friend or him your best friend, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, if opportunities come up and they know you, they have a relationship with you, they'll think of you and tell you. Right. So right. if you have any questions or anything, they'll point you in the right direction. So it's about, I feel like, and especially as first gen students, we don't usually have parents who tell us like these things. So I, since my brother and I have such a big age difference, I'm trying to like equip him with things that help me. And I wish I was told when I was his age. Um, but I think these, these strategies then lead up to when you're in college, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're so used to doing these things, you normalize them. And, and I think of myself, like starting at UC Riverside, I'm going to do those things. Like I signed up for this mentorship program because I need help with this process because I'm, it's new for me. Yeah, and, and be able to like find people that are in the same boat as you are, like, as you mentioned, if. Uh, back in your in your high school where you had your Latino friends, maybe those Latina uh, friends at that age, like weren't going to college or weren't wanting to go to college, but you did. And that's mm -hmm. where you find the where it's like, OK, well, I don't have to stick with this group. Like, right. I don't have to stick with my family and the ideals or morals that they have, because, again, it will most likely be different, which is OK. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like you, then you have to find your own community. And my sense is like, for the most part, like even my own parents, like they weren't thinking about raising a kid that will become an adult mm -hmm. like them and give them the right tools and resources needed for them to be in a, a successful adult without them thinking that they own me. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, yes, you brought me into the life, but I am also a, uh, what is it called? Like a, 
sovereign person. Like I have my own self that is different from them and has thoughts that could be different than them. Like I don't have to live their own life Mm -hmm. repeated. And so a lot of parents that I've seen, they only raise kids for themselves, which means that they will not provide you the thought process, the resources needed adequately for you to be your own person and make choices that are informed choices for you to understand what you want from life. What do you want to get from life? Um, Especially when we're talking about branching out, a lot of parents don't want you to know that you can leave and build networks of other people. Like um, the other day, like I was talking to Jaime, uh, which is my partner, and we're having the discussion about like how for his side of the family, like ellos no les decían like, oh, you can go out and network. Like how many of us have parents that are like, no, um, no sleepovers. You can't hang out with your friends at certain times. If you have hanged out once, at least that's all you need for the week. So like, they don't teach us how to socialize and how to like branch out and how to be okay with like having friends in multiple circles and who have different titles or want to do different things. Like it's always good to be, have a variety and socialize and have the confidence to feel like, Hey, I can ask for help. You know, like all of these things that you need to be successful as just a person in general, like regardless of whether you go to college or not, is always like good transferable skills to have for yourself just in general, like being able to uh, have people like it's so interesting how many people in college like myself, we were brought up of doing all these things, right? Asking for help, having uh, friends in multiple places, uh, knowing where to ask for things. Like um, I knew that I had an adult in my, when I was a kid uh, where I can go and ask for them and for their opinion about things that didn't have to be about family. Like it could just be about life in general. Like you had to have like anybody should have like a group of adults that you trust to confide in. Um, and that can give you advice, like sound advice, or even a, be a, a soundboard of what you could do or not. And they don't have to be like lifelong friends. I knew that there was like this uh, white director when I used to be in student government. I just talked to him about things just so I know like what white people did in working in higher ed. Like I was just like trying to figure out like what the game was, you know, like the, the, how the, how they function. So I can understand what I wanted or didn't want in a work environment if I was going to work in, in higher ed. So it was just like one of those things where you just have to like, do that. And unfortunately, a lot of parents don't allow people to have friends, be able to talk to them, which is so important at that time. Like they incentivize you to just be their minion, to be their retirement fund, which is again, something where we hear a lot about people saying, you know, our parents sacrificed a lot for us. Or, and, and we don't think about how much we sacrifice to, to like try to make our parents happy in a way, because again, we didn't experience what they experienced, but we have our own experiences and our own sacrifices. Like how much, like my parents didn't allow me to go hang out with my friends that wasn't school related. I could only hang out with friends if it was school related, which was ridiculous, right? They just teach you how to be really good liars (laughs) and be able to sneak, be sneaky and try to get like your own way instead of being able to have an open conversation and be honest about 
what I wanted to do and them giving you guideline of how to be safe, at least if you're going to like go out and party, like partying is okay at that stage. Cause again, you're, you're, you're young, you're, you're a kid, you want to do things. Yeah, no, I, I was talking to my mom, um, yesterday cause they just got back from Mexico and she was telling me how one of my aunts is really good with her kids. I mean, with her kids, with her kids, her grandkids and how she takes them everywhere and how she's, she plays with them and she's really good, really nice. And I was like, well, it's like the saying goes, you don't learn how to be a son, daughter, you know, et cetera, until you're a parent and you don't learn how to be a parent until you're a grandparent. So I told her, it's like how the saying goes. Right. And she's like, true. Um, and I've noticed that with like my parents in itself, uh, because we're, my siblings and I, my four younger siblings and I are so spread out, like the way that they raised me and my sister is very different from how they're raising the other three younger kids um, at the, at the stages that we are, we all go through. Right. And um, even, even like having boyfriend girlfriends, right. At, in high school. So like with my, my brother, I'm like, no girlfriends. Okay. Until you're done with college. Cause that was the rule that my dad gave me. Um, and he's like, and then he asked my mom, Hey, can I have a girlfriend? And he's 14. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, no gran cosa. And I'm like, hello, <laughs> where was that role when I was 14? Um, but it just goes to show, right? Like parents don't know how to be parents and they're just basing it off maybe their own way of being raised or, you know, old traditional values or old traditional things. It's just a projection, right? Of like how they grew up and they want us in, in some ways, um, because I've been watching again, like the situational uh, therapist on TikTok is just like, uh, my parents, to be quite honest, thinking about my whole upbringing, like didn't really love us, you mm-hmm. know, because not only did they hit us, um, they didn't really understand uh, that all of us, they understood that we were all different, but they didn't know how to react to those differences. Um, and for the most part, they also especially my dad is a big projection of his own upbringing because he had a tough upbringing, uh, him seeing us even a slight bit of joy of certain things. He was just like, Oh, y'all don't know suffering. Right. And it's like this whole conversation. I saw someone on TikTok comment, like, it's not really a sacrifice. If you want, if you're expecting compensation, So if your parents say that they sacrifice and all this stuff, but they're counting for you to be their assistant, the third parent, gain a a retirement, you know, plan with you working and doing all this stuff, then that's not really a sacrifice because again, they were expecting some sort of compensation from you, from having you, from keeping you alive for this time. So that really changed again, my shift of thinking about like what really is truly like not only a sacrifice, but it's also like, what are the narratives that we bring up, especially with Latinx folks about, especially even more so either children of immigrants, or if you're an immigrant yourself with your parents being immigrants, like as a whole family, like what are the narratives that we play around wanting it to be believed we play into and also not really critically think about 
like what are some built up resentments we even have that we're not, we're too afraid to actually speak because then we're going to be seen as bad children. This whole narrative of like, what's a good child? What's a bad child? Um, And most of the time, the good child is just a robot minion who again is a yes person who doesn't and isn't able to stick up for themselves. Yeah. It reminds me of the book. I don't, I'm not remembering the title, but I recently read my good Mexican daughter. Oh yeah. 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 And it was, I was attracted to the title and, um, and then I read through it and it was really like interesting. Some of the things that the author talks about, you know, growing up with the strict parents and school and going out and yeah, it really resonated. And then another thing I found on um, Instagram that we shared this morning was things. Um, it's a like a meme, not a meme. Um, it's by Therapy Looks, Therapy L U X, and then it's um, things I wish I knew growing up in a Latinx household. That and then you know she lists them, and then one of them is um, you know some things that we've talked about previously. Is like you don't have to hug and greet all of your family members. That being sensitive doesn't mean you're a chillon that all your feelings are valid and okay to express. And another one is that you don't have to raise your kids the same way your parents raised you, which is, you know, touching on our conversation today that sometimes, you know, our parents don't know how to parent and they just rely on how they were raised and thinking that that was the best way to, you know, raise their kids. And, and also maybe that thinking about children, you know, they're your retirement um, that's also something that my dad has shared with me and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to have kids just so that someone can take care of me when I'm older. Right. Like that's like, because he's like, pues, ¿quién te va a cuidar cuando estés viejita? And it's like, no, like we shouldn't look at it that way. Who knows? Even if I have kids, like that doesn't guarantee anything. And also like, why are you having kids if you have these expectations of what they're supposed to do for you mm-hmm. long-term wise, right? Yeah. And it's like, it brings me back to this like conversation I've had with like um, my, my, my family and friends about this whole thing about like, why do you have kids? Why do you even want to have other, like really critically thinking and, and reflecting on what we say yes to, what we bring onto our lives and are we okay and happy with them? Yeah. Like the fact that you already had reflected and thought about like this whole responsibility of having to take care of a kid, um, or even if it's like you having kids, like even the notion of like, would you want to birth someone? Can you even birth someone? Uh, would you adopt one person? Would you sponsor someone? Like, it, it's just like, how do you take care of a, a human being that's under your care? Mm-hmm. Um, or even like a pet, right? Like I, consistently think about like, okay, if I wanted to have a pet, what are the responsibilities needed? And some people don't want to do it. And I'm like, I think they shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, like no one should be pressured to take on something that is like a very, very big deal for, for some of us. And some of us, it's like, that's exactly what we want to have, right. Being able to see the growth, being able to provide the resources needed, or even the guidance to, for, for some, uh, for a little small child to become like dependent, or independent in their own way and like being able to facilitate them flourishing 
in their own personality, in their own thing, and like supporting them in that way, right? Like children and even like pets bring out like the things in you Mm -hmm. that you're just like, oh my gosh, like this is so hard. But I'm like, that is a part of parenting that if like, if someone's taking on a caregiver role, like that is exactly what is going to push you to is to reflect on who you are because someone else is dependent on you, like for a lot of things, even legally, right. Legally, financially, emotionally. Um, but when you're like, even in other roles, like smaller ones, right. When you are responsible for a team, if you're responsible for uh, your coworkers, even students that we're working with, like you're taking on that responsibility and that role of like, I am dedicating my time that I'm alive in this earth to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't, haven't reflected well enough to think like, no sirvo para esto. And it's okay. <laughs> like it, not everyone should parents, not everyone should have kids mm-hmm. um, because it's unrealistic to think that everybody should be living this molded life and the way that we are supposed to do it. Right. And it's like, it, it would serve so many people headaches And I feel like some people just need pets. Some people just need plants. Other people just like solos seeing seeing like responsibility, I think would have been nice. I think like that's a role that I always think that one of my grandparents from my mom's side should have just been, he should have been just a really cool uncle who was not married, who didn't have kids. Cause I think that role really fit him. Hmm. Yeah. And unless uh, instead he decided to traumatize people his own wife and his own children about it. Right. And dragged them into something again, he didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't fit for literally was not fit for that. But, um, that's like the life of like college, right? Like coming back and adults and then we're dealing with adults that again are, are having such a hard time. Um, understanding how to navigate the huge responsibilities are getting all at once, which is like completely unfair And part of me, I'm like, it's because colleges aren't really good at mentoring. They don't know what that means. Having a community, like actual a community that you're actually responsible for and take ownership about whatever harm you're doing to them to make sure that you provide the best way path forward for them to be successful. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like a lot of the times we have this conversation about that college isn't for everybody. And I'm just like, that's so, and it's true for now. College isn't for everybody because of the way that it's structured. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm moving forward. Like future vision is college should be for everybody. If you decide it to be so, it should allow for different learning styles. It should allow for different paths. The degree requirements should be a lot more flexible in terms of like, and more updated. Cause a lot of the stuff is like really outdated stuff. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, way too much outdated information and, and also the K through 12 system is very outdated where now you're learning as adult, everything that other adults have lied to you growing up. Yep, definitely. Um, and then we also wanted to talk about the Delta variant. Right mm-hmm. now, um, what is it? Seven Bay Area counties have required or en- enacted the mask requirement inside and outside, regardless of Uh, vaccination status so yeah which in the last I think that the last episode that we recorded in our check-in 
Um, Ariana, you mentioned about the whole mask thing and like feeling like why are people like still wearing masks and stuff? Um, so what do you think now with like all of this stuff like coming down um, and the CDC finally, because their slides were leaked, are talking about this now? I, I, I was thinking that the state should have waited um, at least until 90% of the population was vaccinated and then, re you know, releasing the mask mandate because then we're doing this back and forth, right? Like if you're vac, you know, it should have encouraged more people to get vaccinated instead of like giving people that freedom too early. People don't understand, you know, it's social behavior. And then asking them to mask up again, it's like, okay, you know, what is this? Yeah, and it, I think it's interesting because um, I, I was trying to look for the TikTok person that I um, that I followed, um, and they're a doctor uh, typed D R S I Y A B N D uh, on TikTok, and they had been talking about the COVID variant like months ago, like months. And for me, like that has been really helpful is being able to stay informed with people on through social media who are like our doctors or experts in the field. Um, I can post the uh, accounts that I personally follow um, on both Instagram and TikTok of doctors, like, and also researchers. And they had been talking about it like all this time, because again, they're the ones who get all these cases of people who get sick and they have to treat them, right? And they have to assess what they're supposed to do especially when new variants come in, they have to start putting together what the symptoms are, how they're reacting to certain treatments. And they were saying that this COVID, the, the COVID variant Delta had been like a few months before, like before the summer started, they had been talking about it. Let me see when I saved that one. Um, yeah, it was like back in June, like early May, June, they had been talking about the Delta. And then now the CDC acknowledges not so long ago that the Delta variant is actually very bad, very dangerous. It has, it's stronger. It's even stronger in terms of like how it impacts your body, how long the treatment is for people, especially if they're unvaccinated, even if you're vaccinated, you still get affected uh, to some degree. And then the fact that it spreads so quickly, um, the way quicker than the other variants. And again, um, they're just recently talking about it and it's like, and we even mentioned, right? Like everybody had this idea that in the fall, everything would back, be back open. Everybody wanted to do it. Estaban diciendo everybody that, you know, you don't need to wear a mask anymore and that like, you don't need to social distance. Mm -hmm. While this variant was around. In India, especially. In India, but like like how people have been traveling around and stuff. And it's just like, they, it's so easily spreadable because again, you can't say is this country is okay or this County is okay because people have been moving around this yeah. whole time. And um, not everybody has had the access to vaccines like the U S has, but we have the most cases now. <laughs> so it's just like, this is like paradoxical, like life we live in. Um, and the fact that, again, we, we don't have this sense of care of wanting to think about other people and the people who are in charge are hearing all this information first. And this is what drives me like up a wall. Like the fact that all the people in leadership 
get to hear all this information first so they can know what to do with their own lives to be the safest possible, to be able to move around their money, to be able to purchase things before the general population gets to hear about it. Yet they don't do anything about it yet until it's super late. Yep. And then already people have already been affected. The ones that are the most affected first. So I'm like, this is why I have like trust issues uh, because I'm like, I'm just going to keep wearing my mask until <laughs> like for the, probably the next three years, um, this is just going to happen. Um, my younger sister majored in public health. So she was like, yeah, this, this typically takes five to six years, you know, or mm-hmm. something like that, like where it gets handled, especially when it's a global pandemic like this. Uh, it's not going to be an easy when you're done uh, because everybody still hasn't been on lockdown. As we've seen online, celebrities, white celebrities don't shower, you know, like so don't shower and most likely don't wash their hands or something because it's like, again, this isn't helping. Um, none of this is helping. Yeah, I think I think that was the mistake, you know, like that they, the California was announcing, oh, you know, we're going to, we've vaccinated this amount of people and now, now on whatever date we're going to stop wearing masks. Like that was like false marketing, right? Like it was counterproductive for, to be promoting that type of. Um, like mask- messaging and like marketing, right? Like this yeah. whole like PSA, like public service announcement of we're okay with the and I think the direction that they were trying to go for is let's tell them that vaccinated people don't have to wear a mask. That way more people get vaccinated so they don't have to wear a mask. And I'm like, what kind of like K through 12 bullshit is this? Like, this no. is like straight up, like how I feel like teachers are in K through 12, where they're like telling you like, we need to do this so you can get this done. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it doesn't work. Like, that's not how, like, obviously it doesn't even work in K through 12 when you're in the classroom trying to manage at least 30 students. And I think it was much less a whole generation, like a whole nat, like, like a whole country being able to do this. And I think it's mostly because the governor was, you know, with the whole recall of his, you know, being governor, he was getting his feet stepped on. So he's like, here, I'll give you this. Don't recall me. Right. I felt like he was under pressure to like give in to, you know, those who were, were against him. And then he also got sued uh, because by five families in most, most Angeles, Southern California, because they, because his request to, you know, send everyone home, all the kids home violated their 14th amendment rights and they won. Yeah. And also like uh, for clarification, it's the California governor, Gavin Newsom, Mm -hmm. uh, that we're talking about. Um, and it's like, that's, that's a problem, right? Like these people in government are negotiating with people who, again, really do not care about anybody's public safety or, uh, the general population's well-being. So the fact that they're able to sue and there's a system to allow people to sue for this, instead of thinking about what is the best solution possible to deal with a pandemic that actually is more dangerous um, and provide Wi-Fi, laptops, everything ready for people. And then now Gavin Newsom is just trying to clean up his mess and say and have more people like him by giving out a stimulus in California, which I don't even know when that's even going to be 
sent out for folks. I think it's only for families with kids. It's families with kids. But that was like in general, the federally, right? Like the federal thing. It wasn't him no giving out money. <laughs> no, My parents but, did, but I did. Because of the surplus of money that California was getting through taxes, um, I think he had announced that California was going to get like their own, like Californians were going to get their own stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like this whole mass mandate, like the uplifting it, I'm like, but then now you have to like close again. Right. So it's like, if you would have just done everything safe or be allowed people the flexibility of doing one thing or another, uh, it would have been okay. But again, we're, we're living in a world where we like to cater to white folks. We like to cater for people who don't um, think of others. We like to cater to people who again are rich uh, to corporations. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just sad. Yeah, but I mean that is a, you know something that we're gonna have to live with uh, and deal with for the next couple of months, and we'll see how how repopulation plans change as the variant goes, and more variants most likely will will come up. Um, yeah, and even um, just to close on this topic, um, even my um, mentorship, what is it, orientation has the option, right? They're like it's gonna mm. be in person, but it's gonna have the option to be virtual for those who can't make it and or keep checking your email if because if we're not able to do it in person we'll do it all virtual so it's like it's you know coming back to higher ed and k through 12 right where they were so confident at you know at the beginning of summer that we were all gonna be a hundred percent in person and now it's like we might not we might not, but we're not going to, because um, uh, my university had sent an email last uh, a week before, and they were saying, oh, we strongly encourage a mask. And then this week, they're like, you have to do mask. Yeah. So it's like, all these people are just hanging on to hope that it's like, it will still be in person because they put so much effort in, you know, planning and putting together in-person stuff. And they want their monies. They want their monies. Um, but then now they're like, oh, never mind. I'm going to announce it last minute after everyone has signed either uh, an apartment lease plans to be in person or whatever to keep it like that, but then cancel it last minute. So mm-hmm. um, look out for more virtual continued distance learning stuff and yeah. working from home stuff, but um, just kind of looking forward to just getting out of this, you know, like yeah. the world where all this pandemic stuff is, is, uh, not happening and we can still go outside and, and interact with folks and meet with people uh, in a safe way and also still working hybrid at least. Um, that would be really amazing mm-hmm. like work hours, but here we are. But anyway, um, now that we're, we're going to transition into um, introducing our guest, our this upcoming guest, we're really excited to, again, uh, have another, another guest. For this week, we have Jamie Camille uh, Caraballo Torres Millet, uh, pronouns she, her. Jamie is the daughter of Hector Luis Torres and Gloricel uh, Caraballo, both Puerto Rican migrants who settled in Boston, Massachusetts, occupied land of the Massachusetts and Wamapog uh, people. In her young adulthood, uh, she learned about the identity, intersections, and complexities that comes with being a Puerto Rican on the mainland. Learning that in her body ran blood of African slaves, Taino peoples, 
and colonizers from Spain, she began to explore her connections to all of those people and how they show up in her body and in her mind. Soon enough, she embraced her indigenous and African roots, but struggled with learning about her Spanish roots and how she may have inherited anti-Blackness through her bloodline. This internal uh, work eventually led her to become a racial a social and racial justice advocate and restorative justice practitioner in the K through 12 world, where she held positions as a lead behavioral support specialist and director of restorative um, practices in school climate. And most recently in higher education, where she served as a director of restorative practices and community standards. She now is the founder and lead facilitator at Stay Just, a restorative justice education and implementation organization. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you, thank you. I know I gave you a, a wordy bio, but thank you for, for, for working through it. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Jamie, um, thank you for joining us. And interestingly enough, I'm actually in Puerto Rico right now. Ooh. So I am enjoying the island and learning about it as well. So I'm really excited to, to have you and to interview you um, or ask you more questions about your experience. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And I'm happy for you. Um, you are definitely going to enjoy yourself and I hope you do. Thank you. So Jamie, just um, can you walk us through a little bit more about your experience and your higher ed experience specifically? Yeah, so um, I will. I definitely consider myself a, a still a rookie in the game of of higher ed, um, but it definitely didn't take me long um, to uh, experience all of the the good, the bad, and the ugly of higher ed as it pertains to I think um, you know the 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 woman of color experience. Um, but I um I began my um, higher ed career about three years ago. Um, when I returned actually to my alma mater, my un undergrad alma mater, um, Pine Manor College, um, small, private, once all women's college um, when I attended um, in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. Um, so I served there, um, like um, we stated earlier, as a director of restorative practices and community standards. So um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a whirlwind of an experience, but I, um, I definitely feel like I learned a lot and I think it solidified for me where I want to continue um, my career. Definitely wanna be in higher ed. Um, I think I'm in the process now of reflecting on my experience and trying to figure out my place in higher ed um, for sure um, from the perspective of um, you know, just being a, a, um, a woman of color and doing the, the work of restorative practices, restorative justice. Um, in higher ed. Can you tell us a little bit more about your own personal um, higher ed uh, journey and what led you to want to pursue a career or profession or specialize in restorative justice? Ooh, um, yikes. Um, so, so for me, um, I, I think, you know, to give a little bit more context and, 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 and detail, I am, um, I served as the, the lead behavior support um, like specialist in uh, K to 12 in, um, in East Boston um, 
quite a few years ago. And being the head um, or the lead person when it came to making decisions about discipline or behavior, you know, behavior support, I was finding that, you know, we were suspending a lot of, you know, um, we were suspending ch um, kids disproportionately, right? So our black and brown Latin Latino kids were getting suspended at a, a much alarming rate than, you know, our white students. And um, that made me feel some type of way, especially being a person um, that was actually in a position of power, um, and wasn't seeing it before, um, it kind of really uh, put me in my feelings a little bit and it made me want to work towards figuring out how to stop doing that, why we're doing that and, um, and figure out, you know, the best way to move forward, right? How do, how do we care for our children and how do we teach our children in a way that it's not punitive? Um, and that's where I, you know, I came across a, um, you know, a training um, and that kind of just, you know, from there, um, I fell in love with the practices and also kind of like realizing that a lot of the way that I moved and a lot of way that I carried myself um, was already restorative in itself, but it gave me language and there's so much power in language, right? Because people can gravitate like other practitioners, other leaders in the school, they can gravitate towards language and I can teach them that, those things. I couldn't teach them the things that were innately inside of me, but I can teach them language. Here's a, here's a tool, here's a skill, even though restorative justice is way more than that, but it gave me, that was like my foundation. Um, and within a year um, of being in that position, we lowered the suspension rates period by, uh, I can't even remember the, uh, the, the, um, the percentage, but it was, we drastically like cut the, the suspension rate and we saw a shift in the, the culture, the climate, you know, um, of, within the elementary school specifically. And that for me was just like, hold on, you know, there's, you know, we're doing things wrong and there's like, it's not an easy fix, but you know, by focusing on the wrong things, basically like the rule broken instead of the relationship with the child or the student, you know, or just showing them love or showing them a vested interest in their humanity, you know, um, we can make a world of a difference, you know? So once I found that out I'm like, hold on, this is not just talk. Like I, I see it working, you know? Um, so then from, from there, I, I actually, be, you know, took on a role of um, being a director within the, within the Boston public school system as continuing the restorative justice work. And it just kind of took off from there. Um, so that's how, you know, initially um, I, I got the language, I would say, for the practices and, you know, and the, um, the philosophy of restorative justice and, and its practices. But I feel like it's always something that was like inside of me. Yeah. That's amazing. Um... And just for our listeners who might not know what re restorative justice is, can you give us a brief definition? Ooh, um, so I think, you know, every practitioner you ask first and foremost is going to give you a different, you know, response. Um, but for me, um, restorative justice is about, and I'm going to explain it more, uh, restoring to what should be. I think that um, as a people, especially uh, as people of color, um, you know, our indigenous ancestors, like our ancestors, like this is, this is their work, you know, these, these are their practices, right? Um, we were raised in villages, you know, we, we were, you know, um, raised in community, right? We were raised um, 
in the world view that you know we as people are 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 all interrelated and interconnected in some way, shape, or form. And that's how they used to move. And that's still within our blood. That's still within us, right? Relationships were the key means to survival um, for our ancestors. Um, and, you know, my approach to re restorative justice is to remind people of that, especially Black and Brown people, to remind us all that, you know, we are interconnected, we are interrelated, we are powerful. There's so much love, you know, within us and we just need to be reminded somehow, you know, sometimes, right? And um, we need to be reminded of our what our common value systems are, right? So that's also restorative justice. So restorative justice is, you know, first and foremost, the, the freedom to practice, you know, your own values, right? Anywhere, um, you know, the, um, what else can I say about restorative justice? Um, the belief that we are all interconnected, interrelated, and that we all, uh, what, you know, what you put out, you know, is going to affect more than just you, right? Finding our common value systems as well. Um, those are all restorative justice and the practices um, lend themselves to promoting that, promoting interconnectedness, interrelatedness, figuring out what our common value systems are, figuring out what our own values are so we can find power within ourselves that already exist, right? So it's just a constant reminder of like, no, I'm, I'm powerful, you know, and, and not, and I see your difference, right? And I also see our similarities, right? And I am because you are, and you are because I am, right? So that's restorative justice. And at least that's how I approach the, the work and the philosophy. And just for context for also our listeners, like how we have our system in terms of correction, uh, accountability, or this quote unquote accountability, what we feel like if you do something harm um, for to someone, or let's say someone is, you know, acting out of line or not following quote unquote the rules, then in that case, um, the way that we currently have our system in terms of how we, you know, hold people accountable, even through the case patrol system is very punitive um, and very, um, it's more on punishing and throwing you away and pushing you out of schools than it is engaging you and really having a better understanding of where is the student coming from and where are those actions coming from? And also where is the teacher coming from as well? Because, you know, it's not just a student who is at wrong, or who has caused harm, it could also be anybody within the school system, right? And so it could be, you know, having to do a sit-in, right? There's a lot of like different approaches to making those restorative practices. So one of the common ones that I've seen, and we discussed this a little bit in our previous episodes when I used to work at it at this other nonprofit with high schoolers, mm -hmm. where um if let's say there's an issue that we had with whatever person involved, then we would have a conversation in a sit-in in a circle about trying to see where everybody's point of view came from, where was the harm and how did each of us felt. So the whole kinder, I feel statements, you know, comes in, but it's more, um, more engaged and more of an involved process where it's not a top-down hierarchy where, you know, the teacher's always right or whoever the administrator's always right. So um, and tell us from your perspective, like how does, you know, especially restorative justice different from how we punish students now? And how do you see the potential of, you know, and not just in a K through 12 setting, but how people, you know, relate to our current, you know, punitive justice system? Yeah. So the thing about the punitive justice system, even within the, um, 
the uh, education system, whether it's K to 12 or higher education, is just easier, right? Like, let's take an example of a K to 12 situation where I'm kicking a student out of my classroom because it's easier than to, you know, have a conversation in that moment, right? Um, or set up a time to have a conversation with them, get to know that student or build a relationship you know, with that student and not just like, oh, what's your favorite color, but like actually being intentional, being mindful about your relationship with that student, even when they're not, then, you know, even though we're not, they're not being conscious of the relationship building, you know, um, because that's just, that's just more difficult. That's harder, right? Than just saying you broke a rule. All right, get out of my classroom because this is how I do things in my classroom. You know, it's not your classroom, right? But a lot of people um, still hold on to that, you know, um, that power dynamic, right? That power struggle, right? Because that's what, you know, that's the system that I grew up in, the education system that I grew up in. It's like the teacher always had the power, the adults always had the power, you know what I mean? And um, that's just, the, I think that's the biggest thing that I, that is um, the biggest struggle, even in higher ed, you know, even though the, the students are a little bit more grown, the, the professors still feel the same way. And it's even like the level of power dynamic is even like, I'd say 10 times <laughs> increased, you know, and then you sprinkle in the, you know, um, oh yeah, yeah, the, um, I mean, I, I say, I think that it, I have witnessed the, um, the bias um, also be uh, alarmingly um, increased in the higher ed and the racism, the whiteness, the white supremacy, like it's just it's 10 times worse. And that has everything to do with power in the classroom, you know? Um, so it, it's just much easier to just, you know, fill out a CARES form and send me an email and saying, hey, so-and-so came smelling like marijuana to, you know, class today. All right, well, did you talk to him? You know, did, what, what, what was the conversation like, you know? Well, why are you referring him to the health and wellness coordinator? Like, you know what I mean? Like, did you talk to him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know what's going on? You know? And then I talked to them and he's like, yo, my brother died last week. You know, I haven't been right. And I'm like, you know, because you sent me an email and that goes on his record. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just easier not to deal with it. It's easier not to build a relationship, not to invest yourself. Right. Um, so yeah. And then the restorative practices can look you know, so different, like circles are beautiful, right? When done right, um, when done right, <laughs> um, first of all, but there are so many ways to be restorative, you know, within conversation, within, you know, the your your practices and policies within your classroom, just your syllabus, you know, your curriculums, like there's just, there's so many different ways to include and incorporate the restorative lens. And, and I, I think now, and after my experience in higher ed, especially after, during this pandemic, I'm like, okay, what, how can I, you know, now start to get into more of those like policy, you know, um, changes, right? Because we, it's all of these things stem from systems, right? And like messed up systems like that are specifically um, created to uh, oppress <laughs> black and brown students specifically, right? They, they're not built for, us and um and really getting smacked in the face with that in higher ed i'm like okay this is where i think i want to focus my work right um so yeah i mean that's kind of how i that's definitely one of the biggest things that i've learned in higher ed i thought that i was going to have an easier time in higher ed because i was dealing with older students and now i'm like oh no way hell no nope 
Um, there's a lot of work to do here. I mean, there's a lot of work to do in the K-12 world, but the higher ed is no joke because now I'm also, um, you know, and, and, and I use this term loosely, um, but I'm also, uh, like, I feel like I was also a, a victimized by, by higher ed in a lot of ways, um, just for being a woman, for being a mother, um, for being a, a, a woman mother of color. Uh, I was, I had quite, the, so it, it, I had this kind of like dual experience um, in my time of, of higher, in higher ed, because in one realm, I'm like really trying to like support the dismantling of oppressive systems and build a, you know, a, a climate and a community from the ground up. And then on the other side, the same community that I'm trying to help build, right? Part of uh, that community is also trying to like break me down and oppress me at the same time, you know? And I didn't realize that until I spoke to one of my mentors, you know, recently, she's like, Jamie, like, damn that's quite the experience. And I'm like, yeah, I felt like I was going to work every day, like to battle, you know, I felt like I was going to, to war every day, you know, and like, you know, have to keep this like balance and like, you know, be the staff person, you know, that's really trying to do this good work. But then also behind the scenes where the students weren't seeing that I was getting shoved to the ground too, you know? So it was, and then I had to kind of like restore my own situation. So this, it was, it was, it was quite the experience. What I find interesting, especially from like your story and many of the stories of, of students is, you know, the understanding of like you're going through higher ed through this like student perspective, right? Like you're not thinking about system wise or, or even in K through 12, like you don't get the language to understand why is this happening to me? Even though a lot of us have an awareness of what feels right or unjust, a lot of us don't need the theories or stuff to know like, hey, this doesn't feel right. And the fact that I'm being thrown away or pushed out or punished or even put in as an example of like when you have to witness someone else mm-hmm. going through that, being kicked out, being told that, you know, well, you have to, you know, you should have known better kind mm-hmm. of attitude from, from a lot of the people in positions of power within, you know, education um, and even outside of education, right? Like we, how the way that we navigate in this world is very much in the, if you're not in line in these policies and this criteria, then get out, you know, like well, you should have, you should have been born wealthier. You should have, you know, known all the rules. You should have known English, like all of these things. Right. And so once we actually have an experience because we are again, mostly in survival mode and just trying to get by, there's a lot less reflection and that's what restorative justice is you know pushing us towards is reflecting no matter who you are of why you're doing things the way that you are and should it be that way and in terms of your perspective especially you bring up a really good point about what is covid and most of us are still virtual as of right now things may change during the summer as more people are pushing to become in person for the fall what are some rules or things that you've seen that are different from the K through 12 and higher ed realm? Like, where do you see the direction of a lot of us can do in, you know, building more restorative justice practices and policies? I would say that the biggest difference and like the biggest, um, the most difficult thing is that when it comes to, you know, what my knowledge of what's happening in the Boston public school system is that it's like a whole school system, like a, a you know, whole district, a whole, you know, and 
there's a lot of room for things to get more, um, I think, watered down or like for things not to be done in unison or like with common language and common like ways of like, you know, um, of, of, you know, either teaching, like, I just feel like a lot of things have gone, I've seen, I've witnessed a lot of things get lost in translation and things or certain schools be, be prioritized, um, certain areas be prioritized, um, you know, and um, in the higher ed, even though I feel like the work is um, not easier, I found that in, I, I, I did find that I had more like um, I had more say, you know, in um, po like policy changing, or at least I I had I, I was put in a in, in a position where I could at least push the envelope forward and actually push the issue enough to actually see some you know see some changes because I'm dealing with one community, right? I'm dealing with one thing and not two hundred schools, you know, in a, in a district, you know, and 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 I'm just this one director overseeing all of that. Um, so I would say that was like the biggest difference um, for me. Um, but then this, no matter those two differences, both um, worlds co-opt the usage of restorative justice and restorative practices, right? And what I mean by that is that no one, I have not seen any, not my community that I worked for, not in any school in the Boston public school system. I have not seen any school anywhere that I've encountered actually you know, wanting to not actually understanding what they're getting themselves into when they say that they want to become a restorative community, right? No one's really willing to put in that kind of work because, you know, in doing the work, you might find that maybe you as an institution shouldn't in exist because you're perpetuating a world of freaking harm to other people or specific groups of people and not, people don't want to go down that road because it might open a can of worms and hey, they might find out that they shouldn't exist because, you know, you're you're polluting the world, right? Um, so in both, I would say in both worlds, that's the biggest, like, that's, that's the scariest thing. And that's also the most like, um, for me as a practitioner, um, and then also like, you know, a woman uh, uh, of color, that's the most heart-wrenching thing for me because, you know, I'm always in positions where people are like, yeah, can you please come just like do a training for us? I'm like, no, like, you know, can you just like help us try to know, like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Like, what do you, what have you done? Like, are you prepared? Like, you know, what's your um, kind of like, what's your strategy? Like, what's your why? Why do you want to adopt restorative justice, right? Is it just a buzzword for you that you want to just kind of you know, um, you can't adopt restorative justice practices and sprinkle them into one part of the community. Like, do you understand like this needs to be a whole community like thing? And 95% of the time is no, right? Um, and at my job, that was the case. I was hired to do that job, but then I quickly, I quickly found out that they really weren't about that life. And they, you know, when I actually started doing it the way that it's intended it to be done, I became oppressed, you know, by those people, the powers that be like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, 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 you know, I'm shaking the table too much. And I'm like, no, you want to, this is what you hired me for. Right. And they're like, uh, I mean, was it? I'm like, yeah, it was. You hired me to create change. 
to get to get shit done. And I'm doing that. And that means that you have to acknowledge the fact that you are a white man in power and you're making the you calling the shots in a community that is 95%, you know, uh, black and brown students, whether first gen, you know, whether rich or poor immigrants, like they don't have a voice here. It's only your voice. And I just need to call that out to your attention. And it's just like, hmm, I don't know about this Jamie girl. And that's how it happens, right? And that's that's just been the experience. Um, that's been the experience. And it's, a, it's both a blessing and the curse because I get to expose, right? And then I can really see what I'm working with. At the same time, it doesn't always work out for us, you know, in the long run. It didn't work out for me, you know, at least in that community. Um, so that's the reality. And that, that's the, like this work is really hard, especially for uh, BIPOC uh, practitioners, for sure. Yeah, you raised a lot of um, points or observations that I made while I was in Boston for almost two years. Mm. And just coming from California, not to like, you know, put California on a pedestal, but we were, it was like, it was like 10 years backwards, you know, like it was like California 10 years prior and trying to advocate and trying to bring things to light or trying to bring a different perspective that Boston wasn't ready for. And I, and I wasn't involved with the Boston public schools, but just, you know, dealing with Harvard and where it was at and dealing with the community, the surrounding communities, it was just like, hmm. And it was, you know, it was interesting because, you know, in California, we have a lot more Latinos, Latinx, you know, involved in these positions. And so it was interesting to come in, you know, from a different state and try to make change and it's predominantly white you know at the high at the top and then towards the bottom and it was like okay well it's like choosing your battles right do I really want to invest my time my time and energy on this or do I want to just let it be and let them figure it out so it was challenging in that way in that regard um, to bring awareness but also get you know pushback and the fact that they're putting a lot of these, oh, well, who is going to fix these issues, right? Who, who do they hire to fix these issues? Oh, like okay. people, right? So especially when it comes to all these like uh, director of, you know, diversity and inclusion or restorative practices or some equity blank, whatever any of those words are, right? It's usually BIPOC people. And then when it comes to the actual people that need to do the work, it still remains white. So it's like the fact that it's like, even in itself, that is definitely not the direction that they wish. Some of them, you know, if they really do want to, you know, you know, fix the harm that has been created for centuries and the things that they have benefited from. And in that case, they need to either step down, retire, or just let better people who have the vision that they claim to want to have do the work at all levels and not just this one lonely office as a staff member that does not have a union backing that does not have, you know, the, the structures in place to do the work that is not just like someone just cashing in checks and doing the bare minimum of, Oh, let's be aware. You know, like we're stuck on awareness for a lot of these institutions because we can, you know, see some of these things, but social justice practices, theory, action can only be done in one small room 
with mostly people who are interested in the subject already, that you don't have to really convince whether this is an issue or not. They probably have already some sort of awareness. The part that's missing is the action. So what's next? You know, like there's there's no action involved where we're willing to actually make transformation happen because that's only, you know, for grant purposes only. Right. And it's only for, you know, the look. So yeah, we do have something, but to be quite honest, you know, everybody should look at their universities or their school systems and think, let's make a category. How many are awareness programs? How many are action? Mm -hmm. Who is doing what work? How much money is being funded for everything? And you'll end up seeing that this is all just a scam. Like it is, it's a big old scam, you know? And, um, I, um, towards the end, I I really got like um, smacked in the face uh, by white fragility as well, because the more that you like highlight these issues, right, um, the more personally attacked a white person, any white person would feel, right? And I'm only speaking of, I'm not generalizing, I'm talking about my experience, right? So the more a personally attacked a white person would, you know, start to get, right? And then the more personally attacked that that white person, whether professor, staff member, or whatever, start to get, you know, um, the more, you know, uproar you would get on campus or opposition to certain things or, you know. Um, and uh, an example I have of, of that was um, in the in the wake of this pandemic, you know, a big decision surrounding like whether to come back last year, like in the fall, like whether to reopen, not reopen, you know, my department student affairs made a big, big, big effort um, advocating for online learning because one, we didn't know enough about the pandemic. Two, we were not equipped, you know, um, with for handling this um, this um, pandemic on campus with students. Um, Three was it's it's just you know black and brown people were disproportionately affect affected by um, the pandemic right and all, all our students are majority black and brown students and some from low income communities right um, and the president um, decided to initially reopen you know the schools despite our efforts despite our letters despite like our our facts, our stats, our everything. He said, no, we're going to move forward. All right, cool. We put up such a fight that at the end, he actually, you know, overturned the decision. But then from that came this, um, you know, this like, I don't know, campaign or thing where um, the old dean of students, a white woman, decided that she wanted to um, lead um, like a an anti-blackness um, situation thing with white for white people to kind of like tell them like yo like this is your work like this is not the work of like black and brown people to like fix the issues like we need to come together as white people you know well intentioned right I don't know how good or bad it went but then there were a whole bunch of white people in uproar about well I don't feel comfortable about a white person talking to me about racism and diversity and equity like I feel like it should be a person of color and I'm like huh okay uh that's interesting um you know uh I'm I mean I'm not gonna front like I'm I'm, I'm a very light-skinned you know woman of color um 
But, you know, I, I just want to point out that um, just speaking for, you know, my, my, my black loved ones, brothers and sisters, that they tired and they're not they're not about to do that for you, like for you. From what I hear from what they're saying, they don't they don't want to do that. They're tired. So you got to deal with your own issues. And they were like so taken aback. Like, we just don't understand you guys. You know what I mean? Like, what do you want from us? I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is not happening. This is crazy. This is crazy. So, um yeah so you know from that i finally saw the use of restorative justice specifically as far as like for grief and healing you know for like um for the community um specifically of, of color during that time because they were like being bombarded and attacked with questions from like random people like what do you think about this white space and like we don't want to give an opinion on that man like let us just to the point we, we had to kind of like all come together and like write this massive letter to the community, like leave us alone, like stop talking to us, like stop, just leave us alone because we are grieving so many things that are happening. We're grieving this pandemic. We're still grieving all the stuff, the anti-blackness and the things that live within us, you know, leave us alone, you know? Um, and that's how, that's what happened towards the end of my time in that community. and. Um, during that time being definitely being a restorative justice practitioner in higher ed um, was hard, <laughs> extremely hard because um, whether or not I'm a practitioner, I'm a human and um, being a human that is not like, I, I'm not gonna say not privileged, but um, because I do have privileges, but just like at, at that point in time, not the person that had like the most, like, like my voice clearly was not welcomed, you know, my thoughts, my nothing was like being welcomed or received that uh, during that time, it was just, it was hard for me to show up like without bringing all that stuff, you know, with me, you know, to a training, to a workshop, to a circle, you know, um, it has been difficult. Um, so yeah, that's a higher ed for me. That's been my experience. With that said, what keeps you grounded or what keeps you going? Ooh, um, I think for me, um, learning different ways of, of, of healing um, and investing time and energy into that has been uh, definitely something that has kept me grounded. Um, one starting, well, first and foremost, um, starting my own organization was very empowering because I now can do it the way that I know it feels right to me, right? Um, and with that being said, I also acknowledge that I wanted to do a lot more, um, you know, work and um, on myself um, when it comes to like these practices, truly understanding them better, learning and even getting permission from the people who these practices belong to, you know, um, I'm working on getting into spaces with people that are not white for teaching me these practices. I refuse to learn restorative justice or practices ever again. Um, from um, white people, um, because that's it his like history, you know, tells us that these, you know, in the United States, these practices don't belong to white people. They belong to, you know, our native um, ancestors. So I'm figuring out how to make sure that I'm doing this work in a way that is perpetuating the least amount of harm. Um, and I think those things keep me grounded because I know that I'm doing the work justice um, and I'm doing it with um, the intentions of paying the most respect, um, you know, to the practices, to the philosophy, to the work. Um, 
But then also personally, what keeps me grounded is finding new ways to heal, right? Um, coming to terms that with the fact that not all, um, not all of my wounds, not all of my scars are gonna be healed and just kind of learning how to like, you know, um, live with those um, and honor them um, and, you know, um, continue growing, you know, with them. Um, so, because there's no separating the, <clears throat> the restorative justice practitioner from like themselves, right? We're, like this is, restorative justice is a way of life, right? It's a way of seeing the world. Um, it's who you are. So I think that what keeps me grounded in this work is the same thing that keeps me grounded as a human being, as a person. So those are things right now that are keeping me grounded. And knowing that a lot of this stuff, like also is just, it's unreasonable to have just one person working this in, a, in an institution or organization that has thousands of people in there and are coming with thousands of different levels of bandwidth and mm -hmm. understanding of like, what do you, like, if you are going to do some sort of healing, like it's not all beautiful and roses. Like mm -hmm. it, it really is confronting your shadow work and, you know, really confronting, like, what are the lies that you were meant to believe for your whole existence? Right. Um, and some people can't handle that, you know? And once you, again, like even just systems in general, like once you open something up, people is the same thing. Once you start opening up something, then you kind of like have to reevaluate a lot more because a lot of these things that you're meant to believe is interconnected to something. You can't just change, let's say, uh, financial aid and not think about, well, then how do we change outreach? <laughs> how do we do different in terms of academic policy, in terms of grading like that can also change. Mm -hmm. I think that's the part that is even more frightening for institutions and people is that a lot of these things, because they are fabricated and, and created, um, a lot of it makes no sense once you start seeing it. Like if you see restaurants making food and they do a lot of waste and then they give that out, then you kind of think, then why do I have to pay for food if there is food for everybody? You know, you start questioning a lot of things. And I think during this pandemic, because we are reflecting a lot, that's the thing that they don't want you. That's why we need to go back in person in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are not wanting to, you know, um, they don't want to face or have to deal with toxic work environments where it's not really feeding us. Um, and a lot of us are being pushed out from programs, from work, from places, because now they're really wanting to diversify, which is thousands of years late, you know, and, and now we are saying, well, we don't really want to be there anyway now. And so, you know, there's a lot of growth and change. And I'm so happy that a lot more people are really you know, deciding what is best for them. And some of that best is just leaving the place, you know? Absolutely. And then, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, I feel like we always get put into this position where like, you know, we have so much to lose, I think as a people, right? Sometimes we have family, right? We have spouses, mothers, grandmothers, kids, right? Um, you know, and just to be uh, transparent, um, the school that I that I previously worked for was um, on the verge of um, closing, uh, you know, financial issues or whatever, and um, they were phasing people out as far as layoffs go. 
And I was one of the first people to get laid off. And I'm a position that is um, definitely needed until the very end because we still have students, right? So you're always going to need a person, a conduct person, right? And um, a programming, a restorative justice programming person because we have people. So wherever there's people, then there's room for the work that I've done. Um, so they laid me off. And um, when you lay someone off, that means you're eradicating the position. They didn't. They gave my my duties to someone else. They spread them around student affairs. So clearly that, that sparked some red flags, right? Um, you know, and and I think that a more, more financially privileged people, a, per, a more financially privileged person um, could have made a case out of that or could have at least, you know, gotten a little bit more clear answers. But you know, I had a choice either go down the legal route or take your severance package and get still get your check every month. If you go down the legal route and try to kind of like prove that this was a wrongful termination, you're going to like, I'm, I'm not going to be getting paychecks anymore. Right. Um, and I have to find a lawyer. Right. I have to pay a good lawyer to actually really make this case work, even though I know that there's a case. And, you know, for my situation, I'm like, this is the middle of a pandemic. I need my check. You know, I need to feed my family still. Right. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to sign my, my rights away because literally you have to sign your rights away when you get laid off, right? Saying you can't sue us for nothing if you sign this paper and still want your severance check, right? So I'm literally in the middle of this pandemic after all the crap that I had went through in this institution, I physically had to sign my rights away to prove any type of injustice that had oppressed me or harmed me during my time there because I needed that paycheck to feed my family every month. Like that was the reality. And then that's the reality for a lot of us, right? Because there's so much injustice, so much crap that we have to put up with, but something always like makes us feel like if we stand up for ourselves, if we stand up for this injustice, you're going to lose this, right? Something bad's going to happen to you. You're going to end up losing in the end. And, you know, I had to take that paycheck, but then still feel like crap inside, like, damn, like I just endured all this stuff, you know, and I know that they were wrong. I know that they were wrong. And, um, but I got to feed my family. Right. And, and just in general, like, even if you went to the legal route, it might be a year before you even have a, you know, to see yourself in court and, oh, and then the whole process of, you know, reclaiming that money, like at that time, you know, the landlord doesn't care if you, you know, are waiting for a court date or not, or if you have money waiting for you. And so it's just made for, again, especially for us in positions where there's less decision-making or less opportunity for us to, you know, really dictate how we want to interact or deal with the situation. You're always at the losing end one way or another. There's just like so many ways from the process of getting hired to staying to leaving where again, they're, they're just not fulfilling your needs. And, and it's not your responsibility as someone who has, you know, put in this position to try to dissolve. And I think that's the thing that we have in ourselves. Like I could have done better as opposed to thinking they did me wrong. And therefore they're the ones who have to deal with the, you know, the, you know, like they can't, they, they easily sleep well at night, you know, and us, we're like here, like, so haunting us from our past of these experiences where we feel it could have gone differently if we, we would have chose something different. Right. But I mean, that's, that's how they treat us. That's how it's conditioned to us to yeah, feel that yeah. we're the ones in the wrong. Right. You know, and that's, and that's us. And I, I, I'm, 
you know, and I, I'm always very mindful of the fact that I am, um, I consider myself a, a, you know, woman Latinx of color, um, you know, but I'm on the very extreme, if not the lightest end of the spectrum. And I have been, you know, I'm, I am in family with, um, and I had been coworkers with, you know, black women, black brown women of deep brown women of, um, you know, of color that were going through some, you know, if, like it, it beyond, you know, even beyond my my experience. And I'm like, damn, then there's no way to not say that this stuff is not real. Like if I'm going through this, right? And I'm this like palatable, like white people sometimes like me because I'm like super light skinned and I can, you know, like I can't I can't imagine that I'm going through that. And but then for some reason, you know, my brown sister over here has like it 10 times worse. And I'm like, you can't tell me that this is not happening, that this is not real, you know? So it's it's just it's it it, it was quite an an eye-opening um an eye-opening experience. And unfortunately, a lot of white Latinxes or white people of color, um, instead of thinking, maybe I should band with other, you know, like, and, and reject all these things and, you know, be as outspoken as my peers, you know, we go to the assimilating route and the, let me just people please. And I mean, that's why most of us get positions of, you know, uh, positions on, uh, in organizations, corporations, especially in higher ed, because again, they believe that, you know, you are with them or that you're going to be a complicit member of mm-hmm. whatever they're wanting to do. And when you go against them, then that's when they feel like, mm-hmm. oh, snap, now I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to treat you in the same way mm-hmm. uh, because you are now a threat. But I think I'm like, if we don't do this, then what, what do we, what are we doing in the whole system? Oh. Doing the same thing, doing the same thing. And, and we don't like it, how we, the very, you know, whatever gravity of like threats and, and, and retaliation we have gotten, again, it comes no, no near, no close, none of that from others, um, especially our black indigenous people and stuff, which you don't really see on campuses so you know this is something that we need to all like grapple with especially when we are giving positions to not feel like we can't speak up or say something and understand where the consequences is and and understand that you know you do have to pick your battles in any work or position that you're in but also there is some growth and room for us to say something and unfortunately like you know it comes to the cost of students yeah um there's so much higher ed man is um is really something but i want to actually like real quick tap on something you had um started um so acknowledging and addressing like the anti-blackness that has been instilled in us um especially i think um you know um with light-skinned latinx you know um people and that it, it's hmm. There's like, and I don't know, like, this is something that this is the journey that I'm on now, like dissecting and diving into my like, um, identity. And that's part of my restorative, like, you know, journey. Um, Because being a Puerto Rican means that you are, um, you are white, um, by way of Spain, Um, you are uh, Taino, um, and you are African by way of slaves, right. And, um, you know, 
growing up in a household, you know, with extremely light skinned, you know, Latinx parents um, who grew up in the times that they grew up in, you know, our uh, our Africanness, our native, our, our indigenousness was never acknowledged like never, like never spoken about, never like nothing, you know, it was all about, you know, uh, assimilation, even if like, it wasn't blatantly like about us, you got to assimilate. It, it was, it was just, that's the way that they carried themselves. You know, um, I grew up with, um, you know, a stepfather from Dominican Republic, who was extremely like, to me, I call him, um, I know some folks have a problem with this word, but they have like, they're, he's extremely white presenting. Um, as a Latinx man, he's a Dominican. He came here, um, he immigrated here and then became a citizen and then became a law enforcement. So he's a cop. And, you know, growing up, I thought it was cool. Yeah, my stepdad's a cop, right? But then now <laughs> he's a Republican cop <laughs> um, and a white presenting immigrant. It's such a cluster mess of like, who for me, because I, I, I now see blatantly the anti-blackness um, radiating from his aura. And it's not like a spoken thing, right? It's just a, how I carry myself, his ideals, his opinions about things, you know, voting for Trump and, you know, to each his own. But when I cut, when I, when I like say, hey, my parents helped me internalize anti-blackness, it's like, Bro, you can't take it personal because it's, you know, and I mean, of course it's gonna take personal, but like that's the stuff that we grapple with, right? That that we um that we endure from parents that don't acknowledge our roots for real, right? And here we are on the mainland, we're not back on the island, we're here, right? And how do what does that mean for my identity? Even me now as a 32-year-old woman, like I'm still kind of like, whoo, I'm just now coming to terms with, you know, who who I am, how I show up in my work, how I show up in the world, right? Because knowing that matters, right? To me, uh, because I'm not trying to pass that same thing down. I now have to unlearn all the anti-blackness that was in, that I inherited, you know, from my parents, my grandparents and whatever, to somewhere at all my lineage, right? So when I'm home with my black husband and my black children, I'm not perpetuating that same thing. I can't, and maybe I have been and I didn't know. And now I'm like, oh man, I got work to do. <laughs> like, I can't be out here preaching this stuff, doing this work. And then I'm sitting home with my light skin behind, like just perpetuating this mess. And, may, and the thing is like, I know that by default, unintentionally, I still am in some, in, in some way, shapes and form. Like we all, we all are, right? And, but now I have been like, oh, okay. And the hard part is that you may lose relationships with loved ones, right? And it's just like, some people are okay with that. Other people are not. But when it comes for me and I, when it comes to me and like my, my culture and, um, and also the, the, the yearn that I have to break generational like cycles of trauma and anti-blackness, Mm -hmm. that's more important to me than my relationship with anybody and that's hard for my family to hear and that's the stuff that we go through like the like like-minded people you know that's the stuff that we go through especially like-minded people of you know white latinx you know families you know because some of them are okay some folks are okay with just identifying checking the white box i'm white cool because you you can do that right 
my soul will not allow me to do that. Like my heart will, my spirit will not allow me. My ancestors come through me and knock me in the head if I ever try to do that because it doesn't feel right to me, you know? And to understand, you know, like a lot of this identities, um, what is our heritage? Like the difference between, you know, our heritage, our ancestry and how we present in in this world, because a lot of these racial and ethnic categories they don't account for nuance. They don't account for, you know, differences. So you may have some sort of ancestry of whatever it is, but you are presenting and living a different reality than your ancestors. And so I think that was something that I had to really have a, a deep conversation within my family and my partner about, you know, what is the difference between how we show up? Because I mean, I'm Mexican. So like if in Mexico, I present in a certain way and I get treated this way, there are white Mexicans in Mexico. Like there is straight white people there, you know, and, and they're white Mexicans and they're not people of color. So it's it's understanding the world of not in the pale to tan range right. of skin color, but it's also taking your whole assessment because one thing is how you personally identify. And another thing is how you present. And that is how race and ethnicity works. It's not who you are. They don't need to know where your parents are or your lineage. It's just how you come off to other people. And again, part of it is how you personally identify and how other people perceive you. And so a lot of these things get really complete, you know, because now we're centering or trying to have more discussions about Black and Indigenous experiences, I think that's where people are now, especially white Latinxes, are like, so what am I? You know, and because they haven't had a lot of reflection of how they navigate the world. And the thing is, you're just seeing it, the reflection of within the people that are around you. So white Latinxes mostly hang out with other white Latinxes. And so they have this whole idea of like, oh, let's oppress the slightly tannest ones in our family because colorism, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just like this whole understanding of like, how does oppression work is unfortunately, you know, not very accessible. And also a lot of people who are saying are not ready for that conversation within our own families. And it's assimilation only leads to Latinxes wanting to become Trump and cops and mm-hmm. law enforcement that's not really law enforcement it's more punishing and criminalization of mm-hmm. not only our people but everybody else um right. so it's un- unfortunate that a lot of us are not able to have that conversation with our family but it's the part where if you can't have that then how is that relationship going to be because are you going to also be complicit within your own personal right. because everybody's really ready to have this conversation about yeah there's white people there's white people that but it's like, you also have to have a, a conversation within your own self and say, what am I willing to put up with? Because everyone loves all this until it comes to their own assets, their own financials, or their own professional development or own their own children. They're all about restorative justice until it affects their own child mm-hmm. and, and they don't get to keep their privilege. Mm-hmm. So that's the part where we need to really have an honest conversation where it's like, if we all kind of not agree with this whole you know, capitalistic system, then we all win too. But people love to have an advantage and it's the power trip and the ego thing that we want to just keep and maintain. Yeah. And I think that um, people like my stepfather are fooled into thinking that they are not oppressed. 
you know, some way, shape, or form, you know, it's, it's that I grabbed myself by the bootstraps and I came here and I worked my butt off and now I got my house and my white picket fence and a good job with a union. It's like, that's beautiful that that was your dream, Pop, you know, because if I break that down for you, you know, I, I could point out a couple of things that is problematic and, you know, this idea, the bootstrap idea and the the loving, the, the playing field is is level for everyone, you know, is a, a, a sad, you know, is, is a lie that you have been fed, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's sad. And, you know, for the longest time, because I had been preaching, especially through my work, like to, to white people that, you know, hey, holidays are coming up when your racist Uncle Tom is sitting across from you on the dinner table saying racist stuff, say, hey, Uncle Tom, you, you're saying racist stuff, and that's not cool. And then I go home and then I got my like, you know, situation going, I don't say nothing. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. So when I tried to have those conversations, and they were super harmful and hurtful, and it's just like, all right, well, I'm willing to kind of like, take my separation from this relationship, not everyone because I don't want to live in this, um, you know, when harmful space, and then two, I don't want to live um, in hypocr hypocrisy, right? I can't like that doesn't doesn't fit well into the my my uh, my way of life, my way of living, right? And then it's that that can be okay, right? And maybe in the future there will be a space where we can have those conversations, but it's just not today, you know. Um, and that's hard. Not everyone can choose to, you know, be okay with that um, because that hurts in a lot of ways too, right? But. And that's a misconception about restorative justice is that you always have to restore a relationship. No, sometimes being restorative is having to let go of a relationship, right? Restoring wholeness, right? Restoring healing, you know, like sometimes that's okay, you know, and that maybe that's sometimes that's what needs to come out of a situation, you know, letting something go or ending a relationship. That's okay too. So, yeah. I'm all about that. I'm all about protecting your yourself your aura right and you know doing whatever it is to make you you know happy and to stay sane right um but we appreciate you and your input um we wanted to thank you for allowing us to interview you and um if you have any last words that you'd like to share um I would say first and foremost, thank you, um, the both of you, um, because these conversations are extremely necessary. Um, you know, when we didn't get to talk about how we um, how we connected, um, I, I ran, I stumbled upon your um, your Instagram, and and just reading like the description of just like you know the you know the podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, I almost found like uh, like solace because I'm like, dang, like that's the conversation I want to be having. And it just aligned where I, where I am right now in my journey of figuring out my identity as a Latinx and, you know, as a, you know, really, you know, light-skinned person and dealing with my parents being how they are. And I'm like, oh, all right, this is, and being in higher ed, I'm like, all right, this is a really like, I think beautiful space. So thank you, the both of you, because this conversation is extremely necessary. And I hope that I get invited back because I can talk for hours um, about this and, and more. So um, no, thank you. This is a um, highly necessary conversation and I hope that we find a way to continue expanding on this conversation. And thank you so much for, you know, coming to us and, and, and having this conversation because um, every single one of us is at a, it is a different journey in this. And, and I think it's very few of 
um, on social media platforms, mm-hmm. um, especially for people working in higher ed, are mm-hmm. willing to have these really tough conversations outside of our, you know, little boxed in areas mm-hmm. that we're given, right? And and the fact that we're we have to have them because I think it's just it's just not working. It's not working for anybody. It's not feeling well. Our life is so short that why live it in such an oppressive way and and always feeling like you're walking on eggshells. Um, And in order to be authentic, like we have to also, I mean, we talk about a lot about therapy and like all Mm -hmm. these conversations about healing. Uh, Well, we have to walk the walk in all aspects of life and, and understanding that there are some moments where we are going to reflect and say, I should have done better. I should have known better. Um, And that's the part where we're hoping to lead all of us in, into identifying quicker the areas that we do need to change and the areas of how we're going to respond in those moments, because so much of our reprogramming that we need is, well, the awareness is the first step, but the next step is let's get us more into action. Let's get us more into doing. And the fact that you came in and talked in, in, in terms of the stage that you're in is where I think a lot of people are in, mm-hmm. you know, where we're still trying to grapple and figure out a lot of these things. And for some of us, this is what we do um, academically, right? Like academically learning all these things, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't, they didn't get to have that exposure earlier on. And right. so thank you so much for, for bringing this topic with us and, and yeah, being yeah. so raw and authentic and, and knowing that all of us, especially in social justice, and I think this is the part where I, I find it interesting, a lot of like Twitter and tech talk and all is that it doesn't lead to um, really giving our space to mess up and know that, you know, there's, how do you make a real apology? How do you restore it in, you know, in the circles that you are? How do you hold people accountable? Like all of us are learning how to do it. And just, we're just trying to connect people to those people. (laughs) Yeah. And then how do you um, also in the, in, in, in the process of becoming aware before unlearning, you got to forgive yourself for the, for the harm that you've caused, right? Because whether it was intentional or unintentional, if you're at the point where you're now super aware and realizing like, I'm, I'm causing this harm, I need to unlearn this stuff, forgive yourself, you know what I mean? And if that's easier said than done. And that's kind of like what led me to this point that I am today. I'm like, oh my God, I have... I've been so anti-black and I didn't even know. And now I'm just like, yo, like forgive yourself because you didn't realize that. Like, this is just, you're a product of your environment. And now you're saying like, the environment is wrong. Like that's, you gotta forgive yourself, you know? So um, I will also add that. And like, no one talks about that piece either. The TED Talks don't, like no one's really highlighting the fact that this work is really about the person, the human, right? And reflecting on learning your crap so then you can be a better person and you know um you're not perpetuating that because again we're interconnected we're interrelated and what you put out into the universe is going to affect the whole universe in some way shape or form so um yeah thank you thank you both yeah and we can't wait to hear you know back from you of like what is what is next especially as we're now moving into in-person and everything pretty sure there's more things to talk about but thank you so much jamie for for this really well um rich discussion and the the journey is messy and everyone you know keep your time but keep reflecting and, and trying to make a change and 
surround yourself with people who believe that you, you are capable of that growth. Absolutely. So thank you. And, uh, For this episode's BIPOC business shout out, we wanted to highlight Shine, spelled S-H-Y-N. I came across this business through Lovey Jones' Instagram account, which I recommend all of our listeners to follow. Her IG handle is at Lovey, spelled L-U-V-V-I-E. Lovey and her team have organized Black Business Love, where she uses her platform to highlight one Black business each day of the month of August. Uh, Shine offers a variety of oral care products that prevent dental problems that other brands don't and are designed to tailor a variety of different oral care needs. Shine offers LED whitening system, Shine Sonic toothbrush. You can even select the brush head for whitening teeth, anti-plaque, and gum care. And other, you can also find other accessories on their website. I was impressed with the options, quality, and affordability. Definitely check out Shine's product line, and we will link their website in the episode notes. For all of our listeners, you can email us at Chicana code switchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shout outs and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.